Well, beloved, we come tonight to the final chapter of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 27. So I'd invite you to turn with me there as we, uh, as we look to the final, final chapter here of Leviticus. Leviticus 27, Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When a man makes a difficult vow, he shall be valued according to your valuation of persons belonging to the Lord. If your valuation is of the male from 20 years, even to 60 years old, then your valuation shall be 50 shekels of silver after the shekel of the sanctuary. Or if it is a female, then your valuation shall be 30 shekels. If it be from five years, even to 20 years old, then your valuation for the male shall be 20 shekels and for the female, 10 shekels. But if they are from a month, even up to five years old, then your valuation shall be five shekels of silver for the male, and for the female, your valuation shall be three shekels of silver. If they are from 60 years old and upward, if it is a male, then your valuation shall be 15 shekels, and for female, the, uh, for the female, 10 shekels. But if he is poorer than your valuation, then he shall be placed before the priest, and the priest shall value him, According to the means of the one who vowed, the priest shall value him. Now, if it is an animal of the kind which men can present as an offering to the Lord, any such that one gives to the Lord shall be holy. He shall not replace it or exchange it, a good for a bad or a bad for a good. Or if he does exchange animal for animal, then both it and its substitute shall become holy. If, however, it is any unclean animal of The kind which men do not present as an offering to the Lord, then he shall place the animal before the priest. The priest shall then value it as either good or bad. As you, the priest, value it, so it shall be. But if he should ever wish to redeem it, then he shall add one-fifth of it to your valuation. Now if a man consecrates his house as holy to the Lord, then the priest shall value it as either good or bad. As the priest values it, so it shall stand. Yet, if the one who consecrates it should wish to redeem his house, then he shall add one-fifth of your valuation price to it, so that it may be his. Again, if a man consecrates to the Lord part of the fields of his own property, then your valuation shall be proportionate to the seed needed for it, a homer of barley seed at 50 shekels of silver. If he consecrates his field... As of the year of Jubilee, according to your valuation, it shall stand. If he consecrates his field after the Jubilee, however, then the priest shall calculate the price for him proportionate to the years that are left until the year of Jubilee, and it shall be deducted from your valuation. If the one who consecrates it should ever wish to redeem the field, then he shall add one-fifth of your valuation price to it, so that it may pass to him. Yet, if he will not redeem the field, but has sold the field to another man, it may no longer be redeemed. And when it reverts in the jubilee, the field shall be holy to the Lord, like a field set apart. It shall be for the priest as his property. Or, if he consecrates a field to the Lord, which he has bought, which is not a part of the field of his own property, then the priest shall calculate for him the amount of your valuation up to the year of Jubilee, and he shall on that day give your valuation 
as holy to the Lord. In the year of the Jubilee, the field shall return to the one from whom he bought it, to whom the possession of the land belongs. Every valuation of yours, moreover, shall be after the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel shall be 20 geras. However, a firstborn among animals, which as a firstborn belongs to the Lord, no man may consecrate it. Whether ox or sheep, it is the Lord's. But if it is among the unclean animals, then he shall redeem it according to your valuation and add to it one-fifth of it. And if it is not redeemed, then it shall be sold according to your valuation. Nevertheless, anything which a man sets apart to the Lord out of all that he has, of man or animal or of the field of his property, shall not be sold or redeemed. Anything devoted to destruction is most holy to the Lord. No one who may have been set apart among men shall be ransomed. He shall surely be put to death. Thus all the tithe of the land, of the seed of the land, or of the fruit of the tree is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If, therefore, a man wishes to redeem part of his tithe, he shall add one-fifth He shall add to it one-fifth of it. For every tenth part of herd or flock, whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. He is not to be concerned whether it is good or bad, nor shall he exchange it. Or if he does exchange it, then both it and its substitute shall become holy. It shall not be redeemed. These are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the sons of Israel at Mount Sinai. Now, the chapter that is before us is one that concerns the, the issue of, of vows and tithes and things uh, devoted to the Lord. Now, vows of this sort are largely foreign to our experience, but they were not foreign to the experience of the Old Testament saints. The German theologian Martin Chemnitz expressed the situation this way. He said, in the Old Testament, vows were made for various reasons but chiefly when people called on God for deliverance, when they found themselves in danger and necessities in order to obtain some blessing. For in afflictions, they not only cried to the Lord, but promised to be grateful, not only in a general way, but in something special, which, according to the law, they might offer to God as a thank offering. And so what I, what I want to do is give some, uh, some concrete examples of this kind of thing, situations that arose in which a vow was, was made to the Lord, just to kind of get us thinking in this category. And then what we'll do is we'll, we'll walk through the text and, and try, to, try to seek to understand what was actually going on here and what was, what was intended in these instructions. And then we'll try to, to draw out some application there at the end. And so... Uh, one example would be the situation described in Psalm 66, verses 13 through 15. In Psalm 66, the psalmist says, I shall come into your house with burnt offerings. I shall pay you my vows, which my lips uttered and my mouth spoke when I was in distress. So there was some distressing situation. He made a vow, and he says that he's going to do this. He, he goes on, he says, I shall offer to you burnt offerings of fat beasts, with the smoke of rams, I shall make an offering of bulls with male goats. So he's in some kind of distress. He makes a vow to the Lord, evidently, that if the Lord would bring him out of this situation that he was in and deliver him, that he would then bring certain offerings to the Lord. Now, there was no 
obligation on him to make this vow to the Lord in the first place. But since he made the vow, then he ought to make sure that he pays it, that he fulfills his vows. Similarly, think of, think of Hannah, 1 Samuel chapter 1. She desperately longed for a child of her own. In 1 Samuel 1.11, she says, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and a razor shall never come on his head. This is a vow that she makes. She, she could have asked for a son without making the vow, but she asked for a son and included the vow as well. Or just one more example. Uh, this comes from, from Numbers chapter 21. Uh, as the nation of Israel was, uh, was working up to coming into the promised land, there was uh, the Canaanite king of Erod who came out against them and took some of them captive. And then in Numbers 21, verses 2 and 3, we read this. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. The Lord heard the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites. Then they utterly destroyed them and their cities. And so this is a way in which Israel interacted with the Lord. They would sometimes make these voluntary vows to the Lord, no requirement that they had to do so, but they could do so. And even though it was an accepted way of interacting with the Lord, the first cases uh, that we read of here in, uh, say, the first eight verses of Leviticus 27 seems uh, to be some extraordinary circumstances. And so if you look to verse 2, Verse 2 speaks of the situation as being a difficult vow, or the King James translated it as a a singular vow. And so uh, the opening situations described here are a situation in which a man would, would vow himself or perhaps vow a member of his family or household for the service of the Lord. And it seems that this would be a situation in which a person vowed for the Lord's servant would essentially be kind of a servant to the Levites. They might help on the, uh, the grounds of the tabernacle, hauling wood for the sanctuary fires, drawing water, or perhaps uh, helping with, with some of the cleaning or, or those kinds of things. And it might be that for one reason or another, the person making the vow of vowing a person for the Lord's servant decided that they then wanted to redeem that person. Either if the person had vowed himself for the Lord's service, he might want to pay money to to redeem himself from that service or a member of his family or household and purchase them back uh, and render money in exchange for the promised service. And in such a case, what we have here in, uh, say, verses 3 through 7, are uh, the various valuations of money that were to be paid to the sanctuary to redeem a person from the Lord's service. And in these various cases, we have different valuations for, uh, for different ages and the two sexes. And I think that we should understand... Uh, the differences that are given here in valuation according to age and sex, not in the sense that the male sex is ontologically more valuable than the female sex, in that if you read through the prices, the, the male is always redeemed for a higher value. And so I don't think we should read anything ontological in that as if there is something 
inherently more valuable about a male than a female, but rather, I think what we ought to understand is that these different valuations correspond to the value of the worker in terms of strength and ability. And so, uh, just as there's nothing more ontologically important about a male than a female, so also there's nothing more ontologically important about someone who is in the range of 20 to 60 than there is for someone under the age of 20 or over the age of 60. Right? We're not talking ontology here. We're talking about strength and ability for, for doing work. And I think that is, is what the, uh, the various prices here are, are based on. And uh, in verse 8, we, we see something here that we've often seen in Leviticus, and that is to say that we have some express provisions from the Lord for the poor. And if the person is poor and they, they made this, this vow and they want to redeem either themselves or the person from their household from the service of the Lord, then the priest was to value him according to the means of the one who vowed. And so it's not the Lord's intent to, to bankrupt his people, to put his people in a bind. You vowed your service, you can't afford it, all right, you're stuck. There was, as it were, instead a, a sliding scale in the case of those who were poor. And so even uh, the, the prices, in other words, could be adjusted if one was too poor uh, to redeem themselves or a member of their household. And the Lord shows his concern for the poor and his, uh, his willingness to, to make adjustments for the case of the poor man. Now in verses 9 through 13, we see the situation for animals which were vowed. If a man vowed an animal that, that could be offered as a sacrifice to the Lord, then that particular animal becomes holy to the Lord, and there was to be no exchange of any other animal in the case for it. And if a man had vowed an animal and attempted to say, well, that one's, that one's actually pretty good, let me do a, do a bait and switch, so to speak, this was a, a non-starter because they were in that case, they would both become holy to the Lord. They would both be the Lord's property. You thought you could, could, do a, you thought you could double cross the Lord and, uh, and do a, a switch around. Uh, the Lord says, no, they would both belong to him at that point. In the case uh, of an animal who was unclean, like a, a camel or a donkey that could not be sacrificed, and if the man who had vowed it desired to redeem it, then the priest would, would value it, determine its value, and whatever the determined value was, then that amount plus one-fifth, 20%, must be paid. The extra one-fifth, as it were, uh, was to compensate the Lord for the loss of what was now the Lord's property. This, this was the Lord's property, and now the one seeking to redeem it, get it back, is not able to pay simply the market price for it that the priest had given, but as, uh, as a, an extra ransom price, Redemption price, he had to pay an extra one-fifth. Then in verses 14 through 25, we, we have the law for the consecration of houses and lands. Verses 14 and 15 lays out the case concerning houses. A house that was consecrated to the Lord would practically perhaps be set apart to some holy use or perhaps sold at a price, and then that price given to uh, the sanctuary, the proceeds given to the tabernacle, uh, for the service of the Lord there. But if the one who had consecrated his house wants to redeem it, he could buy it back. But again, he'd have to pay the established market price plus the extra one-fifth. 
Then verses 16 through 25, we have the, the situation of lands or fields that are consecrated to the Lord. And verse 16 tells us that the value of the land is going to be proportionate to the amount of seed that is required to sow the field. And judging then from what follows in verses 17 and 18, it appears that the valuation was to be one shekel of silver per homer of barley per year until the next jubilee. The standard valuation from verses 16 and 17 seems to be 50 shekels of silver per homer of seed, and that's on the assumption that it is dedicated on a year of jubilee and that that dedication extends through for the next year uh, until the next jubilee 50 years later. Because what we find following in, in verse 18, that if there is less time, and so if the, if the dedication of the land takes place, say, a few years after the jubilee, and you've got only 40 years, 30 years, 20 years, or whatever, until the next jubilee, then that valuation drops proportionately. And so it's based on, based on the number of years and the amount of seed uh, that is to be sown. And then verse 19 gives us what we would expect, that redemption clause. If the man who consecrated the field desires to redeem it, he has to pay the appropriate price plus the extra one-fifth. Verses 20 and 21 deal with a situation in which a man who had sold the field uh, which he had consecrated, then we're told that in that case, the field would not revert to him in the Jubilee. Remember with the laws of the year of Jubilee uh, that we'd seen a few chapters ago, if, a, if someone sold a, a field, the field would always revert to its family in the year of the Jubilee. But if a man uh, who had sold a field consecrates it to the Lord, that field would not revert to him. It would be holy to the Lord. It would be the priest's property. And then verses 22 through 24 deal with what we might call the opposite situation to that, a situation in which a man consecrates a field that he had bought. The field does not belong to his family heritage, but he buys the field from someone else, decides to consecrate it to the Lord. In that case, the situation seems to be that the priest would estimate the value of the field. The man who had consecrated it would pay that amount to the priest, that amount of money, so that he could uh, retain his right to farm the land until the jubilee, and then at the jubilee, the land would go back to its family of origin. Now, the remainder of the chapter deals with other cases that are, that are different from what has come before, because up to, up to this point, we're talking about consecration, vows, uh, in most cases, a possibility of redemption of what has been consecrated. But the, the other cases here, uh, from verse 26 on down, are, are somewhat different. And so, verses 26 and 27 deal with the consecration of firstborn animals. And so, if firstborn animal is, say, a sheep or a goat or a calf, it must not be consecrated, namely because it already belonged to the Lord, according to the law of the firstborns in Exodus 13.2. In the case of an unclean animal, it could be redeemed for, again, a fifth more of the price by the owner, or else if the owner didn't want, want to redeem it, it could be sold at the price which the priest had established for it and the money then given to the tabernacle. Verses 28 and 29 deal with a situation that is a step beyond mere consecration. These verses deal with things which were devoted to the Lord. In other words, devoted in the sense of put under the ban. 
John Gill commented on the difference between mere consecration and this putting under the ban uh, by saying, this is a different vow from the former expressed by sanctifying. For though sanctifying and devoting were both vows, yet the latter, devoting, had an execration or curse added to it by which a man imprecated a curse upon himself if uh, that which he had devoted was put to any other use than that for which he devoted it. Wherefore, this sort of vow was absolute and irrevocable, and what was vowed was unalienable, and therefore was not to be sold or redeemed as afterwards expressed, whereas things sanctified might. And when Gill uses the word sanctified, our uh, version I'm using deals with... uh, uses the term consecrated. And so there's, there's a difference between something being consecrated and something being devoted in the sense that we see here in verses 28 and 29. Now, verse 29 deals with the issue of persons devoted to destruction. It says they must be put to death. Now, this is not to suggest that someone could take a vow and then legitimately put someone's life in jeopardy, as if someone in a bind could say, Lord, if you deliver me, I'll kill my next door neighbor. Right? This, is, this is not what this is talking about. Verse 29 is rather speaking about persons who are put under the van in the sense of the nations of Canaan or uh, perhaps also people who, based on violation of the Mosaic law, deserved the death penalty. Those devoted to destruction by the word of God could not be redeemed. And then finally, verses 30 through 33 deal with the subject of the tithe. A tithe of the produce of the land was to belong to the Lord and to redeem the, the tithe of produce, either of grain or of fruit. A person has to pay its value plus that extra one-fifth. In regard to animals, however, there's to be no redemption or no exchange. seems that the, the practice was is that the, uh, the shepherd would be holding out his rod and whichever one animal happened to be the tenth one to pass under the rod. That was the one which was to be taken. And you'll, you'll notice uh, there that there is no exchange in the case of an animal. Verse 33, he is not to be concerned whether it is good or bad, nor shall he exchange it. Or if he does exchange it, then both it and its substitute shall become holy. It shall not be Redeemed, and so this is uh, similar to what we to what we saw earlier in the case where there was to be no no exchange, and so uh, at least uh, according to one source that I read, not only would both the original uh, tithe and the animal that was attempted to be substituted for it would they become holy to the Lord, but also apparently the man who attempted it would receive thirty nine lashes for. Uh, for his behavior. Apparently, uh, that was Jewish practice, or at least some have said that was Jewish practice if someone attempted to, uh, to do a switch of the kind which is here forbidden. Now, this is the content of Leviticus 27. Now, on the one hand, this might seem a little bit odd or a little bit anticlimactic for a book like this to end like this. But there may be more connections to the surrounding content than would at first strike us. Both chapter 26 and chapter 27 
are about promises. Chapter 26 that we saw last week are the Lord's promises to the nation. Promises of blessings for obedience, promises of judgments for disobedience. Chapter 27 deals with man's promises to the Lord. Promises. There's also the, the subject of redemption. The latter part of chapter 25 dealt with the redemption of persons and of lands. And in this chapter, as we've seen, there is a lot of talk, a lot of discussion about redemption of that which was devoted, or rather vowed, to the Lord. And though chapter 26, which comes between 25 and 27, chapter 26 doesn't use the word redemption, nevertheless it does look back to to the redemption of the nation out of Egypt, and it does look forward to the redemption of the nation out of exile. And also, since this is a book that deals at length with the sacrificial system and how the sacrificial system was supposed to function in the tabernacle, it is fitting that the legislation in such a book contain a means by which the service of the tabernacle would be maintained and financed. And indeed, one of the means by which the tabernacle and the worship of God was financed was by means of these vows of consecration and by the tithes. So I realize that when we first read this chapter, we might, might squint a little bit, because I, I certainly did. As I, was, as I was working through chapter 27, I'm like, what? But I think there's actually more connection uh, and more uh, relevance to the situation at hand than we might at first think. But... We need to move beyond that. We need to move beyond a mere explanation of the chapter, and we need to try to think about some application to ourselves. How do we do it? Well, I'll mention, I'll mention two things. First is that for the most part, this chapter deals with voluntary giving. Right? These vows were not required. You could be a faithful and godly Israelite all your life and never make one of these vows, and it would be okay because you were not required to make one of these vows. Now, obviously, everybody in the Old Testament is required to tithe, but no one is required to make one of these voluntary vows. But sometimes they did, and in doing so, they supported the work of God and the worship of God in their midst. Fast forward to New Testament times, and this is what we find in 2 Corinthians 9, 6-9. Paul says, Now this I say, he who sows sparingly, will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed, as it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever." Now, you may have noticed that my pastoral practice has not been to speak much about giving. That's not, that's not a drum that I beat often. As a general rule, I think a 10% tithe is a, is a good rule of thumb. Depending on circumstances, some should probably be giving more. Some should probably be giving less. But I make no absolute law about the issue of a tithe because it is not clear to me that the New Testament makes an absolute requirement of a tithe. What it does say, though, is that our giving should not be done grudgingly. Our giving should not be done 
under compulsion. But it also says that he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. That he who sows generously reaps generously. And I don't encourage you to make vows in this regard beyond that which we covenant together when we say that we will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel to all nations. I don't encourage vows beyond that, but I do encourage you to sow. Sow generously, sow cheerfully, according to your means, as you purposed in your hearts, because God loves a cheerful giver. And obviously, one needs to support their local church as they're able, and there are also plenty of other good and godly gospel causes to which you can give as well. The Lord loves a cheerful giver, and the Lord blesses those who give. And the Lord is worthy of our generosity. These people who vowed these vows in the Old Testament recognized the Lord's deliverance and his provision for them, and they were, if, if all was functioning within their heart as it ought to, let me caveat it that way, if all was functioning within their heart as it ought to have been, they would have been overjoyed when they went to the tabernacle and presented the vow that they had offered. You, you see that in the Psalms sometimes. They'll say, I will pay my vows. And they're not saying, yeah, I'll, I'll pay, okay. It's, I will pay my vow. There's, there's a joyfulness in their heart, remembering the Lord's deliverance and his faithfulness to them. And they're like, yes, I want to give this to the Lord who has given me so much more than this. He gave me this and he gave me an abundance beyond this as well. And so the Lord is, is worthy of, of our generosity. Secondly, and, and more briefly on this point, one other thing that we see here is, is this theme of redemption. Obviously, we, we see this coming up again and again. And one thing becomes clear about this matter of redemption here from chapter 27, and that is that redemption is costly. If someone wanted to redeem something that they had vowed to give to the Lord, if they wanted to buy it back, market price is, is off the table at that point. It's 20% more for them to get it back. Redemption is costly. Even so, the redemption of our souls is costly. More than we could ever pay for ourselves. And so our Lord Jesus Christ paid the price of our redemption for us. It took his death to redeem us from sin and death and Satan, to restore us to God, to give us eternal life and righteousness. Peter speaks about this in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, when he speaks in this way, he says, If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. And so remember this from Leviticus 27, that redemption is costly, but Jesus paid the price for you. You have been redeemed from a worthless way of life, 
the way of the world that we've received from our forefathers. We've been redeemed with this, not with perishable things, but with the blood of Christ. Let's give praise to him. Our Father, we do thank you for the book of Leviticus, and we thank you for for helping us and giving us uh, some measure of, of insight into it. Lord, we thank you for the redemption that is ours in Christ. We see that redemption is costly. We know that we could never redeem ourselves. But you have done it for us in the sending of your Son. Father, we praise you that you've redeemed us with the precious blood of a lamb, the unblemished lamb, our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would help us, that we would love you, that we would walk with you, that we would conduct ourselves in reverent fear during our time on earth, and that we would be quick and eager to spread the message of this great redemption to those who desperately need to hear it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.